Amen. All right, if you would, let's return back to the text that we just read for our scripture reading tonight, John chapter 17. And we're going to set out with the intention of covering verses 1 through 5 and dealing with the subject of glorify thy son. Glorify thy son. In all of the records of human history, uh, in every document that we have attempted by man to preserve, uh, there are very few that would match the record of our Savior's intercessory prayer. That uh, is remarkable the way that Jesus prayed. Uh, not stylistically is not what the intent is, but certainly from a content standpoint, uh, we see how the Lord Jesus approached his heavenly Father. Now there certainly is the, the obvious and apparent question that many ask. Why would Jesus, who is God, have to pray in the first place? Why would Jesus, who is God, have to pray? And this passage in John 17 gives us really the answer to that question, why Jesus is praying. It also gives us an indication of why Jesus came, why he came to this earth. Of course, this past Christmas Day, this past Sunday, we dealt with the incarnation of Christ and how he came and took on that robe of human flesh. And of course, this is moving way down the pages of time and some 33 years after his birth and Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly ministry. And he is beginning now to continually prepare his disciples and he's preparing to suffer the great agonies of the cross. Uh, this passage and this prayer is in contrast to the great prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which again is a prayer that we could uh, study on its own as well, and we would learn a great deal from it. But Jesus, a couple of observations before we get into the exposition here is we make note that Jesus prays as if he's already standing within the veil or he's already standing and back at the right hand of the Father. He's not pleading in agony. Uh, we don't see descriptive terms like uh, sweating uh, drops of blood. Uh, we don't see him agonizingly saying, Father, if possible, may this cup pass from me. Uh, we see him speaking as if the work that he's come to do is already done. But what is so profound here? is that the work at the time he's giving this prayer has not yet been accomplished, but yet he speaks as if it's already done. And there's something to learn there. There's a great lesson in that. Uh, there is, uh, th we see not only his deity in the way he prays, but we also see his humanity. Uh, both of those things are coming together and praying in his humanity and of course never losing his deity. He uses the word glory a lot. He uses the word glorify. Uh, it's remarkable that Jesus not one time in John 17 says, Father, forgive my people for their sins. He's not asking for sins to be forgiven. And of course, he's not praying for his own sin to be forgiven because we know he could not sin. He's not coming before the Lord, his Father, with many pleas. He's not coming with a prayer list. 
but rather he's coming with a burden. And the burden of his prayer is simple, it's direct, that he may be glorified. That he may be glorified and that his Father may be glorified in him. The words of this prayer are simple, but there's great depth in each word that he speaks. Now again, as much of Scripture, I think this is true. I don't think that this side of being in glory with our Heavenly Father, that we will ever fully grip and comprehend the full meaning of everything that Jesus is saying in this chapter. I think it would be the pinnacle of pride to say, I can fully fathom and fully develop everything that he is praying and saying in this chapter. Now, of course, we would never attempt to, to tackle any portion of Scripture without the Holy Spirit's guidance. And this, of course, is the same as that. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit. The prayer should simply be that the Spirit would give us a glimpse of the glorious truths that are revealed here. Ultimately, the overriding theme of the chapter is Christ praying to His Father to glorify Him. Now that may sound like a very trite and simple thought, but what exactly is Christ asking for? What exactly is He attempting? Is He asking as a beggar or is He praying in authority? Now we're going to notice a couple of things and I'm going to be very, very detailed. So just so we're aware. Be very detailed in not only what words are being spoken, but even making some comments about the gestures of each one of these particular verses. There are some that kind of give us the idea and show us uh, what Jesus' posture might have been. Because I think it's important. It's part of the text. You'll notice there in verse number 1, it says, These words spake Jesus. We're very clearly identified who is speaking. And he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Now it might seem insignificant, but he does not lift up his hands. Oftentimes, if you will study this through Scripture, you will find that the lifting up of hands is actually a sign of those who are not deity. It's the sign of humanity who is praying to God as a beggar or as somebody who is pleading with the Father to give. Jesus doesn't lift up his hands as a person like you and I would. In other words, Jesus' prayer is being offered as he who is also God. He is not lessening himself by praying. He is, he is not relieving himself of any of his deity. But instead, he lifts up his eyes. I was immediately drawn to the, the, the publican and the, uh, the Pharisee and how in that account that the Pharisee, of course, had no problem saying to the, to, in his prayer everything that he did and all that he did, and yet the publican didn't even dare look up to heaven. He could only hit himself upon the chest and said, have mercy upon me. But Jesus lifts up his eyes. His eyes are lifted up as an indication of where his thoughts are going, where his prayer is going. It's very instructive. He's lifting his eyes 
to the heavens. He's lifting his eyes to the throne of God. And he's addressing he who is on the throne, Father. Now again, Father is a word that we hear and we become very familiar with it. But it's a very beautiful way to it's a very beautiful way to address. He says, "Father, there's a reverence here." Now there is not a tension between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for superiority. Okay, I want to make this very clear. Sometimes that uh, some false doctrines getting into people, and they're starting to say that there's this idea that there's a tension between who really is in authority here. Is it the Father? Is it the Son? Is it the Spirit? The reverence that he's showing to his Father is not because he's less. It's not because he is putting himself under. That's really why we have to establish exactly how this prayer begins. But he is showing reverence to his heavenly Father. Before he says another word, he identifies the reason why this prayer is being offered now. He gives us a time. He says, Father, the hour is come. Now, this is not any ordinary hour. This is not just a time in a particular day, on a particular day of the week, in a particular month. The tremendous hour in which our Lord is speaking about here is the very pinnacle or the very hinge of which our redemptive history is swinging upon. It's the hour that has been prophesied that Jesus must suffer, must bleed, must go to a cross, must die, and pay the ransom price for his people. Jesus' words are quite direct, but instructive. Father, the hour is come. It was not a moment too early. It was not a moment too late. It was the appointed hour before the foundation of the world in which Jesus Christ was to go to the cross and to pay the ransom perfectly in sync with the plans made before the foundation of the world. That hour had now arrived. Christ's intercessory prayer begins with an appeal. Now again, keeping in mind, he is not lowering himself and saying, I'm less than you. But there is this appeal that he makes to the Father, and his appeal is to glorify thy Son. And that thy son, identifying himself, also may glorify thee. Now remember, his appeal is to glorify him, right? But that in him, Christ being glorified, that would glorify the Father. That hour that has now arrived is the hour in which Jesus Christ had looked for and looked forward to from all of eternity. Keep in mind that Jesus knew the hour that was coming. He knew what the, what the price was. He knew that he was to be the sacrifice. Jesus was already seen beyond the cross. He was already seen about the suffering beyond the suffering that he was going to endure. He understood all the shame that the cross would bring. 
He understood all the reproach that being hung on a cross with two common thieves. He understood the mocking that he would receive. He understood all these things. And yet his appeal to the Father is, glorify thy Son. This is not a common prayer request. As a matter of fact, when he says, glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify thee, Jesus knows the very fact is that he's going to die. He knows it. It's not going to come on him as a thief in the night. He's not going to be suddenly taken. He knows that this is what has to happen. He knows that what's coming his way is the cross. He also knows that the only way that redemption can be secured for his people is through the shedding of his blood, the agony and the passion that he had to endure, and ultimately his death. Now again, in contrast to the prayer in Gethsemane, he doesn't use terminology like, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup. But his only request is, as he opens this a prayer, is that he may be glorified in what he is about to do. What is he about to do? He's about to suffer. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to die. And he's ready for it. He's not attempting to run from it. He is saying, in what's coming, glorify thy son. Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. I think it's important to observe that there's not a single human being on this planet that would dare pray that prayer. There's not one of us that would dare ask that they, we, would be glorified. No human being spiritually in the right mind says, glorify me in what Jesus is actually saying. Jesus is asking that he may be glorified by his Father and in effect that he glorifies his Father in return. Jesus is putting two things together. This is not a plea or a prayer that humans can pray. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who in receiving glory from his Father is also able to return glory to his Father. He's able to return glory that's what sep- one of the many things, of course, that separates us from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important to note that the great design and object of Christ through his earthly ministry on earth was to glorify the Father. That was the design. He came to save his people. No one's going to argue with that biblically. But that was not, and the Bible does not teach, that the salvation of his people was his chief aim. His chief aim was to glorify His Father. Now when we realize that, and we realize that because of that ultimate aim, the glorification of the Father, the salvation of the people, of God's people, that becomes even more beautiful. Ultimately what Jesus is doing through the death, His death on the cross is glorying the Father. It is bringing glory to the Father. But never get it in your mind that the main reason that Jesus came to this earth was to save you. The main reason Jesus came to this earth was to glorify the Father. 
Now, sometimes we get that wrong. Sometimes we get that wrong and we say the main reason Jesus came was to save you. Not biblically speaking, it isn't. The main reason He came was to glorify His Father. Everything that Jesus was doing, even in His earthly ministry, was to glorify the Father. It was His object. Now, because that was His object, of course, through the salvation of... Uh, and by the way, we don't know how many millions and billions of people are of the elect... Oftentimes we've been labeled as so narrow-minded that you just think there's going to be a handful of people that are saved. I don't believe that at all. I believe that we're actually going to be shocked at how many people actually are of God's elect. So this does not just concern a few people. That through the salvation of people, the Father is being glorified. But keep in mind that the main object was to glorify the Father. Now again, not trying to add to the text because that's not the intention. But what a sight this must have been to be able to not only see our Lord pray as our intercessor, as our mediator, but to speak the words in which He speaks. Again, I don't think we could read this chapter a million times and I don't think we would fully enter into its complete meaning. Because there's an aspect of fully understanding God that is far beyond our experience in these sinful bodies can even put together. Now I know we like to think that we can reach this level of theological genius. There are mysteries and there are things that we will never fully comprehend this side of glory. And you say, no, I, I, I'm comprehending it all. You're not you're not fully even able to completely engage with what he's saying here and enter into it with a full understanding. But ultimately, it's contrary to natural belief. What Jesus is saying here is that a man has to die and enter into heaven before he can fully realize what Christ means when he says, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. The only way we're going to fully understand what Jesus meant here is when we enter in to that glory. When we enter in to that place of heavenly rest. Now, that's where he begins. Verse 2, notice Jesus says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. This is very specific. This is, a, this is a statement that is loaded with not only doctrine, but loaded with truths that mankind continues to struggle with. I would say there are those in the church that struggle with some of the things that he's saying here. What verse 2 is really about is Jesus giving an explanation of what he did by His redeeming. What redemption actually did. There is a universal, authoritative aspect to what He's saying in verse 2. 
Notice he says, thou hast given him power over all flesh. Okay, now something's very clear here. He has power over all flesh. That means power over all mankind. However, that power over all mankind is also has a special or a peculiar or a particular design to it. Okay, so everybody sees this. He has power over all flesh universally. That means there's nobody who's ever lived, is living, or will live that he does not have power over. The special design is there's an object of this redemption. The object is to give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Universal power over all with a targeted particular object of those whom the Father has given him. For what? For redemption. Now that's going to be important, really important, in a couple minutes. But understand the concept. Power over all. But a peculiar, particular design or object towards a particular group of people. Who is that particular group of people? All that the Father has given to him. Now, sometimes we have trouble in our humanity of two views of the same thing appearing to contradict. I will tell you, that's the source of a lot of debate theologically. People have views that are saying something similar, but the people on either side think there's a contradiction. That's what's happening in this. That's what begins happening in what he's saying here. There seems to be some contradiction. If he has power over all flesh, then why is there a special design for a certain group of people? Yet that's exactly what he means. He has power over all. But we also understand that when we are taught of God, we soon begin to understand, or at least we should understand, that God's word does not contradict None of his doctrines contradict. Nothing is untruthful. So there are two things that can exist simultaneously, and we in our human minds may say, well, that's a contradiction. But biblically speaking, there are no contradictions. There's a grand truth that's contained in both sides of this. Okay? He's been given power over all flesh. In other words, Christ, by the very virtue of his death, okay, what he had did on the cross, had power over all flesh. But what he did on the cross, what he's going to do on the cross, is for a distinct purpose. That distinct purpose is to give what? To give eternal life to as many as the Father had given him. That means what was happening on the cross when he was redeeming the souls of man, he was redeeming the souls of those the Father had given him. Power over all. Now this, that's going to completely do away with the people who argue about limited atonement. I just want you to hear that. I don't want you to get bogged down by it. 
where they'll say something, well, then what you're saying is, is that Christ did not have the power to save everybody. No, that's not the proper view of that. The Bible says he had power over all flesh, but the power over all flesh had a distinct purpose, which was to give eternal life to all that the Father had given him. We like to use the word limited in a negative way and say limited means that God could not do something. Listen, there's nothing he can't do other than go contrary to his nature. And we use the common one, he can't lie. But you realize he can't do anything contradictory. He can't go against himself. So what we notice here is we notice that there is the doctrine here of a general and a particular redemption. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that means all mankind is under Christ's authoritative government. Nobody can say, he is not my authority. Even the unbelieving world is under the authority of Christ. That doesn't change. But there's an object in view. Jesus is praying with the people that God the Father had given to him. And we've got to get this because the next 26 verses this chapter are all about the object in view. Those the Father gave him. Specifically when we were reading, when it says, I do not pray for the world. I pray for them. I pray for those of the special object and design. But he had power over all flesh. So we see that this view, the object in view, is specifically the gift of eternal life to the chosen or the elect of God. It can't be any more clear about what he's saying here. He would give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. It doesn't say anything about as many who's who come to him or want to come to him or by their own free will come to him. No, all those that he has been given will come to him. So we have a work of divine mercy before us. Universally, Christ has power over all flesh. All men are under the power of God. But there is a special object of mercy. Romans 9 tells us about this. Vessels of honor. Objects of his love. That he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's why when we talk about Christ on the cross did not make salvation possible. It was actually accomplishing and giving eternal life to those the Father had given him. Now there's deep doctrine here. There's a mention of a particular relation to Christ. Now again, do not ever think of a limit being set. Limit atonement as having any negative consequences to the value or the efficacy of Christ's atoning work. In other words, for you to come to the conclusion to say his blood was not sufficient would be an improper conclusion. Now that's the argument that's happening against you who believe this way. 
is Christ's blood was not sufficient for all. We just read he had power over all flesh. But that there was a distinct design in his redemption that all that the Father has given. Now here's the issue. We don't know how many are those that the Father has given. It may be billions. Okay, everybody see that? But the argument becomes, well, Christ's blood was not effective. I don't really like the word limited atonement as much as I like the phrase particular redemption. Because particular redemption actually gives a clearer view of biblically what's happening here. Limited gives the idea that something was hindered in Jesus that he could not save all. Particular redemption just simply goes right along with verse 2 and says, the special design, even though Christ has the authority over all creation, the special design is God's chosen people. Particular redemption. So don't think about this as a limited thing, that Christ couldn't. But I would also say to you, just like I said with the, at the outset, don't ever think that you can understand or you and I are ever going to comprehend all that goes into this. Because you're going to try to come to human reasons and human conclusions why some were chosen and some were not. That's naturally where our mind goes to. So Jesus is praying this. He's praying with an understanding, of course, as being God. Of course, he does understand all of it. Christ has the power over all flesh, but there is also a special purpose and an object of redemption. This is where the elect of God comes in. Now, chapter 17 is divided very clearly. Jesus prays for himself first. He prays for his disciples. And then he prays for all others who believe. He's praying specifically for the elect of God. The motive for the Father giving to Christ power over all flesh is answered by that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now, a lot of people have, they struggle to see the harmony. Honestly, with you folks in our church family here, who most of you that are here tonight, this was the big struggle for me is not being able to see the harmony in what seemed to be a contradiction. It was, for me, it was one of those last hurdles that I had to get over. That, that idea of particular redemption or limited atonement is a tough one to get over because it seems to be contradictory. But yet, when we understand it, it's in perfect harmony to what the Bible teaches. In other words, it's a consistent message through all the Bible. There are those that God chose with the intent, the object of his great design, and others that he raised up for another purpose. So it's not contradictory. It's consistency. Now, as the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ has absolute power over all men. And because he has absolute power, that means he has the ability to do with him any, any of his creation, whatever he wills to do. Now, that's a hurdle you've got to get over. In order to get to the idea, I can understand a limited atonement, this particular redemption, is I've got to get over the hurdle. Does Jesus Christ have the authority to do what he will 
with mankind. Once you get over that hurdle, it's not a struggle anymore. But the problem getting over that hurdle is this. This seems unfair. That's the hurdle. Well, guess why it seems, un- it seems unfair to your humanity? But it's not unfair in the eyes of a perfect God. So people struggle seeing the harmony here. He has power to do with man whatever he wills, yet that power has a special relation to those the Father gave him before the foundation of the world. So that every one of us and everyone in the past, today, and in the future that comes to him are coming in accordance with John 6.37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Not they're going to think about it. They're going to pray about it. They're going to consider all that the Father gave me, they're coming to me. You're not going to hinder them. And him that cometh, now get this, the him that cometh is one that the Father gave. So as a result, he who the Father gave, what's the result? I will in no wise cast out. Jesus in John 17 is just praying the truth in what is found in John 6. Consistently. My redemption, I have authority over all, but with this particular design. Then Jesus, verse 3, this is life eternal. Notice how declarative that is. This is life eternal, not, all right, here's a theological debate for you. He says, this is life eternal. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, this will sound simplistic, and it might even sound that's just too direct. To know God is eternal life. Now, that means knowing the true God and knowing God according to biblical standards. But eternal life is knowing God. Now, there's a lot of theology that goes into that, right? There's a lot of push and pull between. But if you know God, you have eternal life. It's not you have eternal life if you did this or you did this. You, did, you know God. You know the God of the Bible. You know the God of Scriptures. That's eternal life. Now, in order to know God, that verse tells us you have to know Jesus Christ. Right? Isn't that what the verse says? This is life eternal. That they might know thee, the only true God, separates it and says, and Jesus Christ, both deity, but there's a knowledge of both here. It kind of shows us that the reality here is that if you know Jesus Christ, you know the one true God, you are spiritually quickened. You've been made alive. Your eyes have been opened to see the truth. You've been made willing to believe. You are, in fact, one of those mentioned in John 6.35, and you are, in fact, one of those that all that the Father has given me in verse number 2 of John 17. The knowledge of this is the new life. 
Now you say, that's way too simplistic. No, that's biblical. If you have a spiritual knowledge of these things and you know God, he says this is life eternal. Now the beauty of this is he doesn't say this is life for a few years. He doesn't say this is life for as long as you live. He said, no, this is life eternal, which means you have a knowledge of something of eternal value, not of temporal value. We talk about the, per the perseverance of the saints, the promise that those that are in Christ Jesus will persevere to the end. None will be lost. That's biblical. That's based upon the truths of all that the Father has given. Now, no man can claim to have eternal life who is ignorant of God. No man can claim to have eternal life who is ignorant of His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, you cannot say, I know God, but I don't know Jesus Christ, but thankfully I have eternal life. No, Jesus is very clearly saying in this prayer that those, that are, that those are who have this eternal life are those that do not know you, Father, but they also know me. To know God, to know Christ, is to possess eternal life. This is life eternal. Now again, here's where the struggle comes in. Someone would say, how much of this is head knowledge and how much of this is heart or soul knowledge? There is an ascent that happens mentally. I mean, to, to say that your mind doesn't have any aspect of this, I think would be to misrepresent God. But the enlightenment that your head has is due to the spiritual quickening that you've received. In other words, you didn't, you didn't receive spiritual quickening because you arrived at this conclusion with your head. But to say eternal life is just this idea of spiritual, spiritual quickening, but I don't think about it. I don't know it in my mind. No, it's just the order. It's to know the only true God. It's to know that Jesus Christ was sent to the sons of men. God without Christ does not bring eternal life. And Christ, if He was not sent of God, would not bring eternal life to us. But to know God is to know God in Christ Jesus. If Jesus Christ doesn't come to this earth, the incarnation doesn't take place, man would be completely ignorant of God. There would not be a way of understanding without Christ coming. So Jesus, as He prays here, is praying that you, we can know whether we have eternal life. Do we know the Father? Do we know Jesus Christ? Do we know Him as the sent one? Do we know Him as the Messiah? Important aspect of this, are we resting in that knowledge? In other words, are we completely at rest that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. Folks, I'm telling you, the struggle that most people have in this area is you're trying to go outside of the boundaries of what Scripture declares to be instead of just taking God at His Word and saying, this is what it is. Our mind and our old sin nature wants to do everything. It's going to fight against these truths. It's even, at some sense, it's even going to fight against this particular redemption. It's going to continue to push. 
But if we are resting in Christ, we have eternal life. If we sit here tonight and we say, listen, I am truly not trusting in anything I can do. I'm not trusting in my baptism. I'm not trusting in my, right, my own works. If I have a knowledge and a belief that Jesus Christ is the one that was sent by the Father, that there is only one true God, we rest in that knowledge. We rest in the, the blood that was shed. So Jesus is praying these great truths. Verse 4, he says, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now, Jesus never ceased to be God. But he laid aside his glory. Now, again, that term, people have tried to define what that means. Biblically speaking, all we know is that he laid aside his glory. He did not relinquish it. He didn't stop being God. He laid aside his rightful glory and his rightful authority to accomplish the work of redemption. Jesus, who had come tabernacled in human flesh, he's speaking while he's still in human flesh. Don't lose sight of that. This prayer is not a prayer in heaven. He's still praying in his humanity. But now the time is approaching when his ministry in this world, in the sense of what he was doing at that time, is going to come to an end. What is he asking for? He is asking for a return to go back to the glory that he once had. His glory was at the right hand of the Father. So to try to read into this, that one part of the glory does not, does not talk about him returning back to the right hand of the Father would be to misread the text. That's partly what he's saying. And we're going to get much deeper in this next week. But that's part of it. Glorify thy Son. Return me back to the glory I once had. His intercessory prayer as we began was an appeal to glorify His Son. Again, Christ knew everything that was coming. The Son being glorified would also glorify His Father. And there is this mysterious, wondrous glory that comes to the Father through the death of His Son upon the cross. Somehow, someway, the death of Christ on the cross and, the, and the, the events after that bring glory to the Father. Now again, humanly speaking, our minds, are gonna, that's going to rattle around. But that's partly where we're going, we're going to be going with this. But again, notice how Jesus spoke. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work. Now at this point, he had not yet gone to the cross. But he's speaking as if it's already done. I'm not trying to be cute. But if you call, go home tonight and call your employer and say, I've already finished my work for tomorrow, are they going to agree with that statement? No. You can't complete something that hasn't happened yet. Matter of fact, that probably you need to get here. I already completed the work. No, the work is still ahead of you. Well, isn't that mysterious? He hasn't gone to the cross yet, but he says, I have finished the work you sent me to do. He's already carried it out. He's speaking as if he's already gone beyond and he's already gone back to the Father. 
Now, Christ had every right in the world to pray to go back to the glory that he had. The glory that he laid aside temporarily when he came to this earth. Although he had not yet died upon the cross, he speaks of his great work as a mediator, as an intercessor, as already being finished. Now, mysteriously enough, we don't have time for it tonight, and I know messages like this just kind of, they open up Pandora's box in my mind. He tells his father in the prayer, I have finished it, but then when he's on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. Great mysterious thought. He's praying, it's already done. Because it was a certainty that this work would be done. He says, now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That which he had before the world was, was at the right hand of his Father. Now we'll dig into this deeper uh, next week. I want to share with you, I, I came across this commentary comment from Matthew Poole. And he says that the Lord is praying here, let the glory which, as to my divine nature, I had with thee before the foundation of the world, be communicated also to my human nature that my whole person may be made glorious. From hence is easily concluded against those who deny the Godhead of Christ that Christ was glorified with his Father before the world was, which he could not have been if he had not been an eternal God. He here pleads or appeals to his Father that the glory might shine upon his person as mediator. Now again, that's a deep, that's a very deep quote. But I want us to think about Jesus here in these first few verses. Even though he's speaking about the objects of redemption, primarily these first few verses, he's praying for himself. As he prays for himself, he's bringing into that prayer the objects of his redemption. The second people or second group we see he prays for, he prays for his disciples. So we'll start to get into that next week. But I hope tonight, I hope at the very least, what you take from this, and again, is to take the beauty of what Jesus is praying, who it is that's praying, what he is saying, what promises that you and I can leave here tonight rejoicing in, that if you have a knowledge of Jesus Christ, you have a knowledge of the things of God. Folks, if you are a possessor of eternal life tonight, you are in possession of God's greatest gift. Again, the intent tonight is not for us to leave being able to say, I have a full understanding of everything He means. It's to rejoice in what we know and have in Jesus Christ. And this prayer of what Jesus is asking, again, that, that thought, glorify thy son, every thought after this builds upon that. So we're going to come right back to that next week and say, okay, knowing what we learned last week, how does that continue in this prayer? But what a blessing it is to be able to call one, be, be able to be called one of his and to know that he prayed for his people. I still cannot grasp that even at the right hand where he is today, my mind still can't grasp that 
He prays for His people. It's a wonderful thing when some other believer tells me they're praying for me, but my greatest comfort actually comes from the fact that Jesus Christ, my Savior, is praying for me and making intercession for me and is allowing me access to the Father. There's nothing more joyous than that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this text and this Scripture, Lord. And Father, we realize that we have not even scratched the surface of this prayer of our Lord. We could call it the Lord's Prayer and not be doing a disservice to the Scripture in any way, shape, or form. Lord, I pray that through this, Lord, we would be not only instructed, but we would be, we would be encouraged and refreshed. And to see the Lord Jesus Christ Himself praying and speaking such great truths that we often attribute to a theologian. We attribute it to a systematic series of doctrines that man somewhere along the line created. But may we see that these are the doctrines of the Scriptures. The Lord Jesus Himself speaking of these doctrines that we hold so dear and we hold as such precious truths. And Father, may we hunger for Your Word and desire it more than our daily food and our necessary food. Father, may we look to the Scriptures and consider the beauty that lies before us that no text, no chapter, no book of the Bible is a waste. It's like a precious jewel. All speaks of a glorious God. Lord, I pray that if our minds have been turned away from these things, even as we read in our call to worship tonight, that our minds would be turned once again to the great truths of Your Word and the great truths of who You are. Father, bless these, these series of messages that will come from this text. I pray, Father, that we would grow much from them. And Lord, we will be careful to thank You for it all. And it's in Christ's name and for His sake I pray. Amen.